Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Scripture from today is from the New Testament from Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying like this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, one who sins. I tell you this, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves, they will be exalted. That is the word of God for you, the people of God. Why on earth is there a picture of laundry on the screen today? Anyone make a connection? We're talking today about the practice of confession. We've been talking a little bit about worship through these couple weeks in August, and so today uh, we get to this part of the worship service, and and if you look inside the front cover of your bulletin, there it is, it's marked Reconciliation. A little bit early in the service, we went through a confession from uh, the Book of Common Worship, and I have to confess, every time we do a confession, I get a little nervous. I think it's the place in the worship service where there is the most room for ritual failure. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, right, it's hard enough to confess. Like, first of all, we have to get us in the spirit of confessing. We have to, uh, have to convince ourselves that there is something we really do need to name in front of God. Not everyone thinks that they have something to confess. Anybody know anyone who doesn't think they have anything to confess? 
If you can get that far, right, if you can get to the place where you acknowledge you need to confess, then you've got a second problem, which is identifying what things you need to confess, right? I mean, I mean maybe we just confess the little things, right? I, I threw my trash, my family trash, in the church dumpster one time. Sorry. But maybe I can say that because I know that I'll be forgiven, at least that. Maybe we don't confess the bigger stuff because we're not sure whether there really is forgiveness for the bigger things. You know what the big things are, right? That we feel lost. Or that we are deeply fearful. Or that we're stuck in some pattern of our lives and we do not know for the life of us how to change. So how do we create... How do we create in worship a time of genuine truth-telling about our lives and about the life of the world, especially the hard stuff? Can we be honest, like really, truly, and purely honest in this space and know deep down that our honesty is offered in a space where, A, we will not be judged, And be where we will have our honesty met by God's mercy. Honesty like that, honesty that is pure and unvarnished, is hard for us to do. I always say that that, that the best time for us to come to church is the time when our lives feel the worst. But the truth is, most of us stop coming when life gets really bad. This should be the place where where our weakness is welcomed with grace. But we're not sure it will be, so we stay away. So to help us try to figure out what kind of space this would look like and feel like and what the complexities of creating this space are, I thought I would invite Brene Brown here this morning. Anybody know Brene Brown? Okay, right, she's not actually here, but we're going to watch her on the video. Um, She's this uh, professor of psychology at Houston, and uh, her TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability is one of the five most viewed TED Talks uh, of all time, 40 million views or so. Probably it's like 80 with the way the internet works now. Uh, She's also, by the way, a Christian and has increasingly been talking in Christian language about the role of vulnerability and shame. So um, she talks fast, right? So you're going to watch this video. It's about 10 minutes, uh, and it's lovely. Uh, but she's going to talk fast, so you may want to take notes. And as she's talking, I want you to ask, what does it mean to come to a place like this, where we could really turn our lives inside out and show the parts of ourselves that we'd rather that no one see? So this is uh, Dr. Brene Brown from the website, The Work of the People. I think we've lost our capacity to hold pain, I think, and discomfort, even discomfort. I mean, I think, I think it's a couple of things. I think that we live in a culture that tells us that being vulnerable and being tender is being weak. And weakness is something that collectively we abhor. You know, we can't, we have no tolerance for weakness. We're, we're, I mean, to say we're sickened by weakness. And so culturally, I think there's this pushback to be strong, to put on your game face. And so I think culturally the message is weakness 
is, I don't even think disgusting is too strong of a word in our culture. And so I think there's this cultural piece. But I also think that part and parcel of that is our unwillingness or our inability sometimes to hold space for pain and discomfort. And that's one of the things that I think faith communities, where they miss the mark sometimes, because I think often faith communities always perceive it as an unwillingness to be in the dark, an unwillingness to feel pain, an unwillingness to feel discomfort. But I would argue that it's not always an, an, an unwillingness. It's sometimes the inability. I don't know how. And you keep asking me to do this, but I physically, spiritually, emotionally, physiologically don't know how to sit in that. And I think that is, again, also born of our culture. And I see it when I interview parents who spend their whole lives about three feet ahead of their children, softening everything down, making sure everything is okay. Um, you know, Pema Chodron, who is an American Buddhist nun, who I, I love her work, she, she defines compassion as knowing our darkness well enough that we can sit in the dark with others. And she says that compassion is not a relationship between the wounded and the healed, but a relationship of equals. And I think that's really powerful because as a parent, I think one of the ways we start to change culture is when my kids are struggling, it's not my instinct. I'm not hardwired to let them struggle and sit in the dark and sit with them. I'm hardwired, I think, to flip on the lights. And so to me, we start teaching compassion and teaching the ability to hold space for pain and discomfort by sitting with our kids in the dark rather than fixing them, letting them feel their way through. But I think we, and I think, so I think when faith communities say, why aren't you willing to feel the pain? I think we have to go back even further and say, how can I help you learn how? How can I teach you how to hold space for this? And I think it's even a hardwiring issue. I think that's why we see, you know, a lot in my research, I talk about us being the most addicted, medicated, obese and in debt and busiest adult cohort in human history. I think numbing is one way universally that we have learned to manage discomfort. I don't think you can talk about individual and collective holding of vulnerability without talking about shame. Even in grief, people say don't wallow. And so the shame, you know, this, you know, the shame is this like universal human emotion that we all experience that tells us that we're not good enough and that we're not worthy of love and belonging, things that we're hardwired to experience. You know, where there's no love, where there's no belonging, there's suffering always. And so shame is this extremely effective emotion that says you're not good enough. And so one of the things, if we want to help people learn how to embrace vulnerability, we cannot do that without visiting shame and talking to people about what are the messages and expectations about being vulnerable that are stopping you. You know, for me, you know, fifth generation Texan, very German American, there were just very unspoken messages in my family growing up. You know, we don't get sick, we don't miss work. You know, for me, to learn how to be vulnerable, which was not my natural way of being, I had to first address the gremlins. You know, the shame messages that said, vulnerable people are weak, they're indulgent, they're lazy, they are, you know, and so once I understood those messages and where they came from, I could decide, make a conscious choice to say I'm not buying into it. So I think the way we start, and this is another thing that we can't stand in our culture, we make change by addressing first what's getting in the way. 
You know, what are the messages and expectations that get in the way? I mean, look at men. I do a lot of work with men. And there was a great study that came out a couple years ago that talked about what are, what are the qualities that are most important in our culture, the US, for men to be considered masculine. And I think number one, two, and three were primacy of work. Nothing comes before work, not family, not partners, not faith. Nothing becomes before work. Number two was emotional stoicism, show no, no emotion at all. And number three was power over women. You know, and so, and then you look at what the top three for, what are the most important norms for femininity in our culture? Thin, nice, and quiet. And so you have to really address some pretty serious cultural messages and expectations before people are gonna buy in and say, I'll give being tender a chance. You know what I mean? I mean, this is true. Renee, come on, this is a bunch of hippie talk. Seriously, how, uh, I mean, I like speaking hippies. of faith, faith communities, I mean, that's how we, we, that's, we use shame. You know, we need that to create power. And, and to, <laughs> I, if, we, if we don't hold shame, then how will we keep institutions alive and, and, and generate profits? Like this carving out space for vulnerability, I don't think you can make money doing that, sweetie. Come on. Well, it's interesting, I guess, because you know I, I study shame and, and spirituality, and, shame, and not shame and spirituality, but shame and religion, um, and what people feel. Here's what's interesting: people who I, the people, the men and women who I've interviewed, who have pretty significant spiritual religious scars. What's interesting about them? This is the, all the boys, the questions I get: what denomination's worse? Um, and there is not one, and that's also other researchers have validated it's across denominations. But here's what's interesting that you will find clusters of people who have a lot of shame around their religious or spiritual upbringing within congregations. So it's not the denomination, it's not the belief system, it's how clergy, how men and women that are in power and running the church use shame. But here's what's interesting, which I think counters your point about making the cashola um, on, the, on, on the faith part, um, that men and women who build shame resilience and find strength and kind of heal those spiritual wounds, 100% of the people I interviewed did that through spirituality. The abandonment of spirituality, the wholesale abandonment of it was never the answer to overcoming scars in that area. They may have changed congregations, they may have changed denominations, faith groups, you know. Um, so I do think that people are hungry for it. But how, people are tired of the, the bull business side of it, to be honest with you. I mean, um, here's the thing. The best way for anybody to make money, not just the faith communities, but businesses, is to sell certainty. I mean, that's what, you know, people love that stuff. But, you know, you have them hook, line, and sinker if you'll sell them, you know, certainty. You'll sell, if you believe this, this is going to happen, period. If, you know, it's parenting the same way. You buy, you know, you have a parenting expert that says, do these three things, your kids will stay safe, sleep through the night, make friends, and go to Stanford. You know, people are going to buy that. So people love certainty. And so you have seen a lot of faith communities cash in on that. Um, that... We have the answers, and here, you know, and so, so then they do, but my, my belief is that faith minus vulnerability, when you said, you know, equals fundamentalism and extremism, 
when you can't hold space for the questions, you bankrupt faith by definition. We live in totally uncertain times, politically, socially, economically, environmentally, spiritually. And so we are like big scarcity mongers. Like we, there's never enough anything. There's not enough money. There's not enough safety. There's not enough certainty, enough perfection, enough extraordinary, you know, not, not enough joy. And so people who can sell that and market that do really pretty well. You know, I come from a world where, you know, if you can't measure it, you know, it doesn't exist. And so, and now I've become a person who believes if you can't measure it, it's probably not that important. And so it's a hard thing to reconcile. But what has been the most surprising to me is the people that, I, that have reached out to me the most are like, you know, Fortune 200 companies. People want to bring me in. And I think, you know, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, this is not something that you're going to be able to parlay into some kind of trick. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't fake this, and so, or you can't change it. You can't turn it into a business model. And I, and I'll, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and this has been very controversial about my work, especially with the communities I come from. Um, I don't think you can do this without spirituality. Yeah, you know, I just don't think you can. And I don't. And I probably, I may have a broader definition of spirituality than a lot of people, but you know, for me, spirituality is just this deeply held belief that we're inextricably connected to each other by something greater than we are and something that's about love and compassion. And for me, that's God. Um, but I think that third option that you describe or the work that I describe, um, I don't know about most people, I can't sit in that alone. Yeah, I just can't sit in that alone. You know, I just have to, I have to rely on faith. I have to rely on and not faith as we, you know, I have a Richard Ward quote in my book that I love that says, you know, we say we're a people of faith, but we love certainty and closure and proof. And that, you know, by definition, that's not faith, you know. And so I can't sit in that third option without really believing in something bigger than me and something that's, that connects us all in an important way. that that was piqued your curiosity what did you hear that connected with you say that again say more spirituality could be a certainty what do you mean say, say more but a spirituality of, that holds uncertainty. What else did you hear? What's, she sort of makes the statement that what sells is certainty, but there's what heals and nourishes is this more uncertain space where we hold pain and vulnerability together. 
come and get some tender. We don't hear that a lot in the marketing. Yes, Rick. Holding each other as this aspect of spirituality. The, she, she quotes uh, Pima Chodron, who's a, a Buddhist, but this idea that compassion uh, is a relationship of equals. That's a little challenging for us. Sometimes we think compassion, oh, I feel strong and I'm going to give to someone who doesn't feel as strong. She says, no, that's actually not how it works. Compassion is, I think she says it's Someone who knows their own darkness well enough to sit with someone else in their darkness. Wound, the wounded healer of Henry now that Henry Nowen spoke of. So, my my dream and my hope, and I think perhaps yours too, maybe not, but maybe it will be, is that the space that we create here together and that the Spirit of God creates with and for us is a safe enough space where we all bring the fullness of our lives and the fullness of the life of the world around us. We name it and we acknowledge it with all humility And that God meets us in this place and says, I know and I love you. So Jesus, who himself goes through this deep, 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 deep place, who has been through it, sits with us as we go through it. In that process Our vulnerability, our pain is transformed into this capacity to heal one another. That's mysterious. It is not something we can commodify or sell or market or or guarantee even. But it is the promise of the Christian tradition. You bring the fullness of your life into this place where the fullness of other people's lives are on display and the fullness of God's love nourishes us and heals us. It's what empowers all of our ministry. It's what makes us ministers of reconciliation. May this be such a space for you, for me, for all of us. Let the people say, Amen.